the thing is about being like a Zimbabwean person is there is so much history that the the English version of events just destroys uh, to to an incredible extent that all you have are like these dreams that are hard to explain because you don't know what's happening you know in the year 10,000 or like in the year 15,000 but yet you know that your ancestors they went through so many different things Welcome to the Decolonization in Action podcast, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonom, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Season 3, Episode 9, and this episode features Mufta. He is a Zimbabwe-born writer, filmmaker, based in Berlin. We talked about the Royal African Trilogy, which is a three-part film series that he created that consists of all the pretty girls that fly 70s sci-fi in the Age of Wonder. This trilogy explores Black African psyche in the modern world, how the past informs our present and derails our future, if ignored. The first part of this interview is a conversation about the concept and creative process. The second part of our conversation was held at a film screening here in Berlin, Germany at the Kino Central. Century, take two. Scene five, take one. One, four, one, take one. Okay, perfect. Uh, I can see that. <laughs> 81, four. Take three. Thank you so much for joining me today. Can you tell me a little bit about your identity? My identity, uh, even though I'm an entity of no identity, but as a writer and director and actor and producer, basically creating some visual fist uh, from the idea stage to its um, exhibition stage is Nube, which is my last name, Nube. Uh, so the NCU, they make it sound like you're calling a cat. And then the BE is good luck with that. You have a long and complicated creative process for the film, All the Pretty Girls. Can you tell me about this film and how you came about the story? I was in Sweden first. Uh, I moved from Stockholm to Malmo on a little holiday writing a book um, which the title needs revising for. Um, the book I wrote in 2011 and uh, so I dropped down to Copenhagen having, having finished writing the first draft of the book and I was in this bar, um, an Oxfam bar. So whatever you drank, proceeds went to Oxfam which no doubt encouraged the likes of me to indulge in some nice beers. So I'm under the spell of uh, this lager they're selling and I'm feeling good and I'm there. Lo and behold, in the table across from me, there's some resplendent looking young people uh, just talking and I find their spirit to be quite beckoning. And I start talking to them as anyone in my shoes would you know, being so open to the world as I was at that time. And I discovered that they're actors. So being quite taken by them, uh, I boldly said, I'm going to write a play and maybe I'll start now. In fact, I'm going to start now. 
and in a few days time before I leave Copenhagen I can send them the play and we can meet and talk about it and see if we can do it together so they are good spots because they're all as luck would have it actors and they have a production that's staging in a few days time so I vow to come and see it and to send the uh, play the night before or something like that of course I've forgotten that when actors are doing a show you shouldn't try to get them to do anything else so anyway um i write this uh play set in one room about these prisoners who are being tortured for information and are so defiant and it's called uh, uh Volgare and all the pretty girls and Volgare is where a friend of mine i met there is from so um I send it to them and they read it or they don't, but I see them at their show and I don't think it's for them. Um, and for the next few months, I sort of write to them, checking in and asking if they've read the play, if it's something they'd want to do. Um, and after a few months of hearing, yeah, we'll read it, we'll read it, I gave up on them, but I didn't give up on the play. Um, I started really crafting it. Uh, working to the bone and trying to get it to pop as much as possible and uh, so the play um, was changed to all the pretty girls and the setup was you have these people uh, being tortured for information and they are so defiant and they're having a good time in the first half they're trying to show just how strong they are um, so they are reminiscing talking about their memories but they're not talking about the bad things they did because they are being tortured uh, for information about the bad stuff they did in Zaire. It's set in Rostock, this play, um, and that's in Metpom in the, in the north of Germany. So I want to do it as my next thing. I tell my parents that, yeah, there's a chance that I may move to another country and I want to do this. Um, I started exploring which countries I could go and live in as London had been good to me like with all the different plays I'd made and the people I'd met I wanted like to start afresh and to convert this play into a film. Can you tell me about any challenging moments in producing this film? Yeah it was so challenging because the material itself is challenging so people were having little breakdowns so we were basically um, scrapping and fighting over things that I had never had to think about in England. And I think on some level um, I was being pushed back somehow because the actors felt that I didn't have enough experience, I didn't know enough about what I was doing, uh, which for me was all a matter of perception. Um, so one of them quit after the uh, preview show and I had to delay continuing with it to recast the role. And my producer informed me that the other two members, because there were four of them, the other two members were also thinking about quitting. So I thought it was the right time to just start afresh and stay with the producer actor. So I confronted the two people like thinking of quitting to say, okay, we're not gonna continue to work together. So now I've lost three actors and it's the summertime and my money is low so we move it to september um the filming of this thing uh, as we've now performed it as a play i'm content towards the filming of it i sent an organizational email uh, which put 
the new member or the new one of the new members off and she also quit so then it meant I delayed uh, making the film until December. And by this time, it was so cold. Um, and we'd found a nice keller where we could shoot it, like a nice basement. Um, and I had two heaters. The actors had some warm clothes on underneath their costumes. And after like an hour of shooting in this space, two of them uh, said to me, or one of them spoke on behalf of the other member. Uh, and they said that, if I continue insisting on shooting here and working here, they are going to quit as well. So I need to move this somewhere warm. Uh, and that's the only condition um, they are not going to budge on. So uh, desperate to make this, um, all the pretty girl story, I moved the operations to my bedroom at Kotbasator. Um, and we removed all the furniture in the bed and put it in the living room with with the blessing of my housemates and um we we colored the walls uh, a grayish dirty color using coffee so so that they gave like some type of perspective otherwise they were just gonna be white and we shot this um and after the seventh day of filming uh with my housemates being supportive and everyone really trying of having arguments in a way or being shouted at by one actor in German. She just wanted to take a cigarette break and she didn't appreciate that we moved from the keller, the basement, to like uh, the fifth floor of an apartment at Kotbasator. And so it just meant that she wasn't able to, you know, come out of this incredibly psychological experience, you know, sort of examining like um, the crimes from colonialism and these actors or the characters that are playing being stand-ins for like uh, absolutely evil people, you know. Uh, this production that's exploring the, pro the problem of evil uh, was really taking its toll on her. Got the costume from her, I gave it to like someone with the same build as her, and we shot a scene where her character was killed. And then I was left with two actors now. Um, and I continued... Uh, with their support, I rewrote some of the things and we continued shooting. Um, and it was the easiest shoot, one of the easiest um, experiences of my life after that third member was um, yeah, forced to leave, sadly. And she is incredible, by the way. She was just going through something and the project wasn't helping her. And yeah, just everything that had happened just meant that she wasn't able to give her best. But we've since made up. Calling. Beast of a demon, take two. Camera rolling. Can you tell me about the editorial process? I finished shooting this, but the sound is now a little off. The images are not what I wanted them to be. So for the next two or three years, I am just, oh my God, I'm just trying my best, man, to get this thing edited uh, by different people. And every time I discover something new that can be changed, but I cannot really afford to keep asking my editors to work on it. So I start doing it myself. And after like three years, I realized that the story needs a bit more context as I can't use all the footage we shot um, due to it being sometimes inaudible um, or, you know, the performance 
performance is not quite matching up to what I was going for, um, I decided to only use half of it, the, um, the last 30 or 40 minutes uh, of, the, of the short scenes. Um, and so I, I came up with this concept of making a documentary at the beginning to sort of, yeah, set up the context. And I spliced that in um, and the film was popping like a bra strap after that. Um, and then I spent the next two years just trying to get it to be exactly where I needed it to be, to get it to land in the way I was hoping. And then Corona came and the doors were open by Kino Central uh, for one of my films, The Age of Wonder, to be shown. And I suggested this debut, All the Pretty Girls, and my follow-up, that fly 70s sci-fi futuristic ship with two exclamation marks. And they said yes. So... That's how I got to be here uh, presenting this film. How do you think about this film in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement? When I think about uh, the film in the, in the context of now, um, I think that it's a very, it's certainly the most daring story I've ever done. And I don't think I will make something quite like this again. Um, I'm gravitating towards comedy now. And I think, for our times, having a movie about these um, stand-ins for the most vile people from history who were behind some of the most heinous acts, having a story about this topic and humanizing them and infusing them with empathy and love, I think it's been quite instrumental in my drive to understand how the world works and how the evil people operate. Um, I'm deeply grateful for this story. Um, for it awarding me the opportunity to explore the problem of evil. And I would say it's a love letter to my God to state that there may be so many things wrong with this world and other worlds, um, but I try to see the good in it nonetheless. And I hope, and I hope, and I hope, and I hope it comes through. Time spent with you took me far away from me Darling, you would never let me be Forever trying to turn me into something more What happened to less is more Should have let me be let me in my little corner where I belong. Should have left me alone. And it's been a pleasure to see your films here. <laughs> uh, this is the second one I've seen on, big, on the big screen as opposed to my computer. And I appreciate the creative depth that you have. Um, Thank you. In the sense, because these, like the, the one that we saw on several weeks ago mm -hmm. was very futuristic mm -hmm. and looked into another kind of world. Whereas here, in some ways, you were evoking aspects of the past. How do you make sense of um, the violence of colonization and trying to humanize, as you said, mm -hmm. um, people who cause violence? Mm -hmm. What inspired you to do that work? Um, concerning your question or regarding your question, I would say that um, in having studied psychology for a couple of years and also being fascinated not with violence or with violent acts, 
but with the different levels of debts, like good and pe- good and bad people, like uh, appear to possess in abundance, you know, um, that I wanted to put people in a high pressure situation and see just how far the exploration of the absurdities of the cruelest acts they committed that may not necessarily be all that cruel to some people of a certain predisposition or like people who feel a certain way about human uh, suffering but just to have them select that best of package of all these misdeeds or of all these crimes they committed and to try to have them discuss in a way that uh, makes you feel like that was the most normal thing in the world for them. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I had like a certain type of fascination with how people rationalize uh, their evil deeds. Um, well, that's a very interesting take because when I think about, at least from a psychological decolonial perspective, mm. one of the most famous people that comes up is Franz Fanon, mm. who, as a person who is black, Martinican, part of the French Empire, and then positioned in Algeria and witnessing the psychological damage of colonialism, mm. that very much became part of his kind of motivation to challenge the mm. French mm. and to join the Algerians uh, in their liberation struggle. And what you're offering is a different, somewhat different take that we actually, what, what happens when we go into the head of the colonizer and, yeah. and do the work of the psychological damage that happens with them once they realize the extent to which they are monsters who yeah. torture and kill <laughs> and don't yes. want to be subjected to the same means that yeah. they exercised. Yeah, and that's even a fraction of half the things or like are the things they did, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these characters did. And I, I think definitely in my, like, um, in my travels around this world, I have met people who have condoned certain acts of violence mm-hmm. or who have perpetuated certain uh, acts and they just had this sense of humor that was a little off, mm-hmm. that they found certain things funny that were not that funny. So I think uh, that permeated to when I was uh, putting this together, that um, it wasn't so much going inside their head, but just uh, segmenting certain sections where maybe they are best of uh, you know, time with a sibling is, and how that's discolored by their need to be violent somehow. I think as a as a whole, uh, like as a total package, um, some some of the colonizers uh, responsible for the most heinous things uh, in any number of continents, they they don't even allow that room of room to uh, scrutinize them. Uh, they are so dense with the wrong kind of energy that it's so hard to find any levity. So yeah, I think these figures somehow the characters allowed me to feel like I had a a direct access uh, to their minds than actual living figures. So I have a question about yes. your stylistic choices mm-hmm. and because you begin in many ways with what I see as a film collage mm-hmm. of various cuts of trains, production, etc. It reminds me of like the Lumiere brothers of the late 19th century where for them mm-hmm. just positioning and portraying the mundane or what might be considered the mundane like a train passing through a town is part of how the you know early cinema begins and the the ways in which your early collages within this film were positioned I couldn't help but think of of some of that um like were you 
trying to make reference to early cinema and the mundane and the everyday mm-hmm. before you entered into your the kind of newer film role or is am I imagining that? Wow, uh, your tone of voice and your questions are so wonderful. Um, <laughs> I take it because I had a little here. <laughs> okay, so let me bring my A game to this. The collection of images you see at the beginning, the collages, the montages, that they're mostly a consequence of wanting to tell such a big story, but only having archival footage exist. If I had money, maybe I would have shot like some more sequences, you know, thrown in like uh, some nice little period scenes down the street in West Germany. But the, archi- the archival footage works so well in providing me with access to different points to history that I cannot afford with my budget, uh, which is zero, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but I'm heavily influenced by cinema because I started uh, film and from a very young age, I had an affinity towards the moving images, like uh, their flicker, how like, the degradation in the image is also a beautiful thing if used a certain way. And just the cutting style I incorporate, like I used or incorporated, I wanted it to draw attention to itself, almost like the French New Wave, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big influence with this film because in making a film, you're always trying to dig yourself out of a hole or you're always trying to make it less bad than it is, you know? So a lot of things also like the jump cuts, um, the way like some of the uh, images would be like on half the screen, like a different ratio size, that that was to do with the quality of the image that it wouldn't allow you to like have it, you know, fill up the entire thing. And yeah, moreover, um, as a consequence of just wanting to have a feeling of the past, even if you cannot show it in high definition, but just to have it there. So then what does it mean to portray versions of the past that concern violence in the way that you give, provide us with these foundations and nuggets? But then at the same time, as a filmmaker, there is also an aesthetic contribution that you offer, uh, perhaps a way to get rid of the ashes. I think you said something about the ashes that kind of haunt your heart, mm-hmm. the things that you've seen, and not just you, but mm-hmm. so many others, and the, you had the statistics about the millions of African, or billions mm-hmm. of Africans who were harmed by Europeans. Mm-hmm. So what is the role of the filmmaker to marry the trauma, intergenerational, colonial, or otherwise, mm-hmm. with perhaps what a film can do is to offer hope and joy and beauty to mm-hmm. people coming together? Mm-hmm. How do you work through that? Oh, wow. Wow, wow. If I answer this question correctly, I go up a few IQ points. That's such a nice question. Um, okay, let's see. Now I have your question. I just thought we should do an impression of a Zimbabwean politician and dodge it, you know? So, my primary goal in this life is to always have an understanding between my spirit, myself, my heart, and my head. Like, I divide myself into three parts the head, the heart, and the spirit. And I have the spirit of a writer. So like it means that like traumas, victories, like uh, BSs from the past, present, and future, they can all just like in- inhabit my spirit. I, I could be walking through like a symmetry and like uh, read like an epitaph or read someone's uh, eulogy or something like that. And those words can bend such a deep hole in me that I write down 
the whole information and I put it into a book or something. So I think as much as I don't personally like as this thing before you want to meet a ghost, um, but I think my spirit has met so many ghosts and continues to meet ghosts. So I, this film is a collection of like the upset like messages and things that I was getting writing this, uh, like the different research and what it was unmasking. And just the thing is about being like a Zimbabwean person is there is so much history that the the English version of events just destroys uh, to, to an incredible extent that all you have are like these dreams that are hard to explain because you don't know what happened in you know, in the year 10,000 or like in the year 15,000. But yet you know that your ancestors, they went through so many different things. And coming from like Ndebele, Zulu background, you know, uh, having family in South Africa, the Zulus are famous for being like a war people, you know, for like just taking over stuff. I was going to say the S word there, but I want my mother to listen to this. So. <laughs> just taking over stuff, you know. So I do think that inside a lot of people's spirits are from that side of the world there is a spiritual experience of being the victim and the oppressor and being all those different things so when you're writing something like this you don't want to say you are like a, a goody two-shoes and that there is no way you can channel something because it's outside of your range of emotions you just avail yourself to it so then it becomes like a um a tossed salad you know you don't know where the diet is going to land uh, in terms of if you achieve the greater empathy that allows you to tell the story in a filmic way or if it's going to be a different expression. Um, and I would lastly say that the language of cinema just lends itself super nicely to like incorporating different media. So be it like photographs, statistics, you know, you can doctor so many things to feature narrative. So in this way, film is such an incredible and deceptive art form. Because it's hard for you to tell me from the top of your head if I said you have two choices or one choice uh, or one guess, one guess, which of those things would you stake your um, money was 100% true? You know what I mean? Like, which thing can you say you saw there and you're confident to say, yeah, Nube there told the truth in terms of facts. Oh, you want me to answer that yeah, question? Yeah, you or oh. someone from the audience. <laughs> yeah, someone from the audience. Because <laughs> it's hard for me to make uh, yeah. declarative statements about truth. I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I feel like there are different realities uh, in uh, how we move through the world because of our subjectivities. Yeah. The objectivity doesn't fully resonate with me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm working through different epistemologies at the moment, especially as I read through uh, historical, you know, treatises and other things that I I'm I'm questioning what truth is right now but not in terms of fact fake news or things like this <laughs> like I'm not part of the far right but it's more of like on an epistemological level and as philosophy so but does anyone have an answer to that I mean we can turn it into a rhetorical question yeah. uh, question there I would say that like a film just allows you to have a mockumentary element at every level like you can doctor facts mm -hmm. to drive home a spiritual point. You can can sort of, you know, have images juxtaposed in a way where it gives another gateway into the bigger picture. And that's what I wanted to explore with this film in terms of a filmic language and connecting it to history. So taking the spiritual information that I get as myself and taking the different signatures of film and incorporating them. That's the soundbite.
So in some ways that then relates to, um, so I was rereading earlier this week, Octavia Butler's Parable of Azar, and it is, she wrote it, or it was published at least in 1993, but it's set in 2024, Los Angeles, there's climate crisis, uh, fires, uh, all kinds of other disasters, people are really scavenging, and a 15-year-old girl is seeing and witnessing this, and children have to learn how to shoot guns at like the age of eight or whatever, and like have, it's very difficult place but one of the things that she does in this text is that there even though it was the future for the early 1990s it also looks to the past to make sense of how people can move forward and so parts of what she's doing this speculative science fiction novel is um, how do you marry the crises and the chaos that we live in the adversities with um, the past that we've inherited or the things that have been stolen from us and what you're trying to your work is trying to do is go back and forth between the two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to do some more digging up on this person, and I would say that um, if I make enough films in my lifetime, um, I would like to have the different research and the different things I came across exist in like a museum space, mm. be it like a museum of my own building, like uh, or whatnot. But I think. With just any number of films, um, there is a strong research element that, like, two pages of facts can result in just one line, uh, you know, about I did this to this person, but that line can just explain so much. So it would be great for an audience to be able to walk through that and to understand, yeah, all the different things that informs it. And it could be that I read this work, uh, this person's work, and it triggers something in me. And I go back on the editing suite and I find like a nice little sample of what they say or what was said on that behalf and I put it in. And so, yeah, it's definitely like a communal uh, thing. Uh, and I would love to broaden my horizons with what I know. So. My name is Agna Bonam. And you just listened to Season 3, Episode 9 of the Decolonization in Action podcast. This episode featured digitally-based voices in Berlin, Germany. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at DeckinAction. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us, and please stay safe and merry.